Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Well, that's, uh, that's who we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about Jesus from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. If you don't have a testimony, knowing that Jesus has entered into your life and changed you, then that's what this message is all about. It's for you that are here. It's for you that are at home. It's for those that don't know Jesus yet. I've entitled this message, Christ Jesus, the Savior and King of the Gospel-Centered Church. One of the key verses in all of the Bible comes from this particular text. It's verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In 1495, a man was born by the name of Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney lived in uh, England, and that is about the time, uh, the precursor era to the Reformation, uh, before Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. And uh, Thomas Bilney was, was a man who grew up in the Catholic Church. He desired peace with God. He wanted a relationship with God. He wanted to be right with God. He went to the school for law. He was ordained. He was within the church, and he never found peace. Uh, many times in Roman Catholicism, there's a lot of do's and don'ts and rituals and rites, and those things don't always lead to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes they actually push people away from a true relationship with Jesus Christ. And Bilney was one of those who struggled with that. And then as a student, he came across Erasmus's translation of the Greek New Testament in Latin. And Thomas Bilney was reading through the book of 1 Timothy in Latin, and he came across this verse, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And in that moment of reading that verse at that one point in his life and in human history, Thomas Bilney put his faith and trust in Jesus alone, became a follower of Christ, became a preacher of the gospel, and that wasn't looked well upon by the Roman Catholic Church. Bilney preached and he taught. He had converts like Hugh Latimer, and Hugh Latimer had converts like Nicholas Ridley, and Bilney and Latimer and some of these others who went around in England prior to the rise of the Protestant Reformation. They were preaching and teaching that salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and Thomas Bilney was put on a stake and burned for not or for for not being for not for continuing to preach the gospel even when he was told not to preach the gospel he was converted from this one verse this is a testimony section of 1 Timothy Paul has been instructing and will continue to in this section instructing Timothy to deal with the false teaching that was going on at Ephesus He was trying to instruct Timothy and make sure he knew what he needed to do to keep those false teachers from from having a foothold in the doctrine that was going on there in the church. And and Paul kind of makes an aside. And he makes an aside by giving his testimony, talking about what had happened to him and how that grounded what he was doing as a a gospel-centered preacher. And by the way, as a church, that's who we want to be. We want to be a church that's gospel-centered. That means that 
The gospel of Jesus Christ drives us deep in our faith. It it also drives us out in our faith to spread the good news of Jesus to those who have never heard it. And Paul testifies to that. And that gospel centers around not the preacher, not the messenger, not the church, uh, not even the doctrine per se. It centers around Jesus. Read with me, if you will, this wonderful uh, section of Scripture, uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord, of our Lord, overflowed for me with the faith and love therein Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, or of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not, or that they may learn not to blaspheme. We're going to center this message on Jesus Christ, and there are several responses we can make to Jesus Christ. The first is that we can receive Jesus. We can receive Jesus. That is an option in front of us. Paul uses the title Christ Jesus, and if you think about that term, a lot of times we use Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name means Savior. Christ is his title, meaning Messiah. He's the anointed one, the one who came from God. And I think in this particular instance, and often in Paul's letters, he will use Christ Jesus, beginning with his title, Messiah, and then using his name, Jesus, as Savior. I think Paul does that because in his mind, and if you think about Paul's testimony, Paul was a Jewish man. Paul was a man who believed in God, believed in the law, believed in the Old Testament. He did his best to accomplish God's expectations in the Old Testament, but he did not believe that the Messiah had come. He was still looking for the Messiah to come until that he met the Messiah on the road to Damascus, and the Messiah introduced himself as Jesus, the one who he was persecuting. And so I think there's a theological importance to Paul saying, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, is Jesus. He is the one who came. He is the one who came to do what? To save. And Paul gives this testimony of what that looks like. He says, he gave me strength. He set me apart for this ministry. My responsibility is to preach and to teach and to pastor and to plant churches. And Jesus is the one who strengthened me, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Listen, the the first thing we've got to remember before we can receive Jesus is we've got to know that we need Jesus. You'll never follow Jesus unless you admit that you have a need for him. That's why Paul sets up the gospel with a discussion of the law in the previous paragraph. Listen, Paul recognized that he was something that was bad, that was evil and wicked. He was a blasphemer. What did he blaspheme? Not certainly the God of the Old Testament, not, the, not, not what he knew about who God was. He believed in God. He blasphemed Jesus. 
He didn't believe that Jesus was God and he persecuted the church as such. He said he was a persecutor, a violent man. He was someone not deserving of anything that he had received. And some of you in this room get a little bit of what Paul's talking about. Because you can look back at your past and you can see who you used to be. We could all write, we were formerly this. We were addicts. Or we were adulterers. Or we were haters. Or we were persecutors. Or we were, you fill in the blank, we were that. And Paul was that. And he came to a place where he admitted that he was sinful and that he was wrong and that he was ungodly and that he was unrighteous. It's a beautiful statement, but I received mercy. Now listen, some of you watching are thinking, Paul was that, and yet Paul was an apostle. I'm not like that. Well, God saved me from, and you fill in the blank. I'm going to tell you something. If If God will save a religious terrorist like Paul, if God will take someone who was murdering people in the church like Paul, and redeem him and show him mercy, there's not a sin you've committed that will keep you from God rescuing you. You need to hear that. And some of us need to hear that as Christians because we've got people around us. We've got people in our family situations and in our circles that, man, they look like they're far gone. They look like they're past the point of redemption and rescue. I'm going to tell you something. Paul was way down that road and he wasn't past the point of redemption and rescue. Your neighbors, your family members, your friends, they may not be right with Jesus. And we're going to talk about how we can receive Jesus. They may not be where they need to be with Jesus, but they're not too far gone for Jesus to reach them. And that's why we as a church and we as a body of believers and we as Christians, we can't stop praying and we can't stop sharing and we can't stop preaching and we can't stop witnessing to those who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come back next week. We're going to talk about that in detail in chapter, from chapter 2. But listen, they're not too far gone. We have to admit that we need Jesus. And, and here's what I want you to get. There's something beautiful about this. Paul did not initiate his own conversion experience. God did. Read what happened. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And what Paul's not saying, he's not saying I was ignorant of everything. What he was saying is the way I behaved, I thought I was doing the right thing. Now, I'm going to tell you something. God will forgive you. God will redeem you, but he will, he will not make you not be rebellious. Okay? God reached out to Paul in his sinfulness, in his ignorance, in his unrighteousness. But when God spoke to Paul, when Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul responded in humility and confession, which let us know that he, was try- he thought he was doing the right thing, but God showed him that he was doing the wrong thing, and God redeemed him. And Paul responded in a moment of humility in that, in that instance. I'm going to tell you something. I know some folks that have heard the gospel, and they've rebelled against God and rejected God and pushed back against God. And we'll talk about them a little bit more in a moment. But God wants us to respond. Paul acted in ignorance, but notice what Jesus did. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul gives that statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now personally and practically we need to get this, that Paul was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And Jesus showed up while Paul was on that journey to do something evil and wicked. Jesus showed up to convert Paul, to change Paul, to redeem Paul. Jesus initiated the conversion of St. Paul. 
Paul was a blasphemer. Get this. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor. He was an insolent man. He was violent. And God met Paul's sin with some really wonderful things. He met Paul's sin with mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Literally, in the Greek language, it's be mercied. It's as if it's a verb form of mercy. God showed mercy to Paul. In other words, instead of showing up to Paul on the road to Damascus and saying, Paul, you have killed my people. You have hated me. I am going to strike you dead in judgment. Which is, would have been justice. God showed up. Jesus showed up in that moment as Paul and said, I'm going to show you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You deserve judgment and punishment. I'm going to give you mercy. And, and, and then if it's not getting what we deserve, Jesus showed up to Paul and Jesus showed up to us and gave us abundant grace. That's giving us what we don't deserve. It's saying to us, I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience my forgiveness. I'm going to give you an opportunity to experience peace and, and a, a sense of relationship and a calmness and an assurance. I'm going to wash your sins away. I'm going to do for you more than you can imagine. I'm going to give you grace. God met Paul in his sinfulness with mercy and with grace and with faith. Faith and love that come through Jesus Christ. I want you to get this. If you believed on the Lord Jesus, do you know who gave you the ability to believe on the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus gave you the ability to believe on the Lord Jesus. Faith is a gift from God. It came from God and it enabled Paul to put his faith and trust in Jesus alone. And why did God do this? Why in your past, in my past, did God show up to me when I was 18 years old and instead of showing me judgment and, and, and killing me in that moment from my rebellion and self-righteousness, God showed me mercy and grace and gave me faith. Why did he do that? He did so because he loves us, folks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, Jesus came to show us love. And the love of Jesus that offers us salvation will outrun any sin that you ever committed. It'll outrun your doubt. It'll outrun your wickedness. It'll outrun your depravity. It'll do that. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I want you to hear Paul's, Paul's heart there. He acknowledged that he was the worst sinner. I don't think he was trying to make a, an absolute case that he had done the worst. Here's what happened to Paul. Paul recognized the greatness of the salvation that he had. He recognized the glory of the one who saved him. And he recognized the depravity that he brought to the table that God alone could rescue. And in that moment, that moment of confession and writing here in 1 Timothy, he's acknowledging there's no one that I can imagine is worse than me. Take a truly converted follower of Jesus. That's exactly the way all of us feel. When you realize Jesus is the one that rescued you and your wickedness and depravity and unrighteousness so permeated your existence and Jesus showed up and he showed you all of that gunk and wickedness and sin and he looks at you and says, I don't want to destroy you for that. I want to redeem you from it. I, I don't want to curse you with it. I want to wash it away because I love you. There's a recognition there where Paul acknowledged, and I'm the worst of sinners. And there, there's nothing, I mean, I'm just terrible and evil and God washed me. And he did so to show off his glory. I'm going to tell you something. Every single follower of Jesus who's been redeemed by Christ is a trophy of God's grace. 
Notice the way Paul worded this. I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul's saying the reason Jesus saved me, the reason He showed me mercy, is so that God's patience and grace could be on display in my life. Paul wanted Timothy, he wanted the church in Ephesus to remember, here's who I was, here's what God did, That means God will do that for any of you. Folks, that is what we're to be as believers. That song that that Penny sang just before we entered into the sermon time, let me tell you about my Jesus. Folks, every single one of us who've been forgiven and redeemed, that's our story. Let me tell you about the one who looked at me in my sinfulness and saved me, forgave me, and cleansed me, and and, and redeemed me. Let me tell you something, folks. We can receive Jesus. Jesus is giving you an opportunity. You say, well, well, didn't I come to church tonight? Didn't I initiate this opportunity? I don't believe you did. If you're here and you need Jesus, Jesus has been working in your heart and life. He's been drawing you and giving you a chance to trust in him. And this is an invitation on his part for you to receive Jesus. If you're watching at home, I'm going to tell you something, folks. God orchestrated the events for you to hear the gospel, and he's working in your heart and life. I'm going to tell you, he is inviting you to receive him, to receive salvation. And and here's what I love about Paul. And and, and Dr. Mike, you'll love this. You'll really love this. When Paul talks about salvation, it drives him to worship. It does. I'm telling you. That's why worship is a key component of our mission at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. And, and I don't just mean singing worship, although that's a significant part of it. I mean giving worship and, and, and praying worship and testifying worship and preaching worship. Why? Because what happens when we start really thinking about what God did for us that's undeserved, and we start thinking about who that is that did for us that was undeserved, it drives us to a place of worship, which is why we get the doxology in verse 17. Now to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul does this over and over again through his letters, by the way. And, and I think in part, I think there's some of what, what's going on. I, I really believe that Paul was, uh, was declaring his letters. I think in mo- many cases he was speaking it while an amanuensis was writing it out. And, and I think sometimes what happened is Paul was writing and had this train of thought. And, and he was speaking this out. And somebody was writing it down. He started preaching a little bit, and he started testifying, and he started remembering who Jesus was and what Jesus did. In that moment, he starts bragging on Jesus. Listen, this one that you can receive, let me tell you who he is. He's the king. That's really important for 1 Timothy. Because part of what's going on in 1 Timothy, there's trouble in the church. There's some elders and some, some, uh, some, some people who are preaching false doctrine. We'll get to those in a moment. And so what we need to grasp as followers of Jesus is we have an authority. The authority isn't me, it's not your pastor. Authority isn't the group of deacons at our church. The authority isn't, it isn't our denomination. It's not the authority. The authority in Wilkesboro Baptist Church is the king. His name is Jesus. That's the only authority we have. That authority comes through the pages of Scripture. It's delegated authority from Scripture. And so as we testify from the Scripture, then that's authoritative because it comes from the king. It's his words. It's his words to us, to the king. And what we need to recognize as a church is when the king tells us this is what we need to do, folks, this is what we need to do. And that's going to underscore some of our application of what we're going to read in the rest of 1 Timothy. Paul says, to the king. The king of what? Of the ages. 
He's the king eternal. Listen, he doesn't have time. I talked about this in an illustration a few weeks ago. Jesus is not bound by the circumstances that bind us. He's not wondering what's going to happen in 2024 because of what happened in 2022 and 2023. He knows. He's the king of all ages. He's not bound by time. That means we can worship him and adore him. That means, let me tell you something. That means if we'll really grasp this, we can have a whole lot of peace. Because the king, who is the king of all the ages and knows everything that's happening now and everything that ever will happen, there's not a thing that can happen in your life that he doesn't know about, that he's not in control of, that he's not sovereign over. And that is the king that saved you. That is the king that came down into human time and experience to be your redeemer. If he'll do that for you, folks, there's not a thing you can go through that he'll say, bye, that's too hard for me, I'm going to leave. He won't do that. He's the king of all ages. He is the king. He is the king immortal. He is immune to decay and immune to corruption. Some of you, some of you, uh, well, I mean, let me say it this way. We want the fountain of youth, right? We like to live longer and look better the longer we live. And and thank God for medical technologies that have allowed us to live longer. All of us are going to decay. Our food ain't going to last. Our gold and silver is not going to last. Our bodies aren't going to last. They get tired and they get older and they get diseased. And I hate to break it to you. It's going to happen to all of us. It won't happen to Jesus. He's immortal. Listen, he can't be touched by a virus. He can't be touched by sin. He can't be touched by time. He can't be destroyed. And that's the one we worship. Listen, he's in control. He's immortal. He's untouchable. He's glorious. He's invisible. He's invisible. Do you realize that God is invisible? He's spirit. That means in in the way we should understand it. He's outside of the physical uh, circumstances of creation. He's not like us. But I want to tell you something. He came in human flesh to be seen by us. The glory of God, and Dr. Mike, you referenced this in Colossians, and we sang about this. The glory of God is that God, invisible, wanted to make himself visible to you and to me. And he did so in Jesus, and Paul's testifying about that. He's the immortal. He's the invisible. Not the immortal, only that, but he's the only God. Listen, there's no other. In Ephesus, there was the temple of Artemis. In the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, there was Zeus, and there were many other gods that were worshipped. Nero was worshipped as a god. In contemporary American culture, we have this idea that pluralism is right, that there are many pathways to get to heaven and to get to some kind of ultimate reality. Hinduism is okay. Buddhism is okay. Islam is okay. That's what our culture will tell us. I'm going to tell you something, folks. There is only God. Jesus Christ is his name. There is no other. He has no rival. He has no equal. There is no other God in all of the world. And if you're here searching for truth, if you're at home looking for truth, the only place you're going to find peace and forgiveness, mercy and grace and faith in abundance is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And I'm going to tell you, Paul's inviting us to receive Jesus. He received Jesus. He wants you to know and receive Jesus. Something else we can do with Jesus, we can remain in Jesus. I won't be as long on this point. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. 
Paul had given Timothy some instructions in the church to make sure he was there to stabilize the problems that were there, to deal with the theological errors that were there, to make sure the church was corrected. That was his job. That was his responsibility. And so the gospel that Paul had been entrusted with, Timothy, Paul was now commanding Timothy, entrusting him with that very same gospel and inviting him, Timothy, you received Jesus. There were prophecies made about you. You had the hands of the elders laid on you. You have been assigned this responsibility to oversee this church in this season, at this time in human history. This is your job. Trust in Jesus. Remain in him. And how do we remain in Jesus? Listen, let me tell you something, folks. We do so by waging the good warfare. This Christian experience that you and I have, it's not easy. That's why we need to know the Jesus of verse 17. Because we're going to face temptation and we're going to face trials and we're going to face difficulties. We're waging war against our inner wickedness. We're waging war against a world that hates biblical Christianity. The culture around us doesn't want to follow the principles of biblical truth. It wants to ignore them and push them back and do whatever it wants to do. That is warfare. We're, we're fighting against an enemy that wants to keep people from going to heaven and following Jesus. I'm going to tell you something, folks. One of the reasons we need the church, one of the reasons we need doctrinal soundness, we'll talk about that in a second, but one of the reasons we need that in community is because if you're going to live your Christian life in the world outside of this congregation of believers, you're not going to be on the same team as the people out there. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be increasingly harder. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, he did not write to Timothy and the church as if they were the the predominant worldview. Remember, there are only several thousand Christians on planet Earth at this time. Christianity was not the predominant worldview in Ephesus. It wasn't the prevailing cultural perception or cultural ethic. It wasn't. And so Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight. Remaining in Jesus is recognizing He's our strength, He's our grace, He's our mercy, He's the one who gives us faith and love. And you know what? Even if it's hard today and tomorrow, I know He's with me. Remaining in Jesus is being willing to own up to the fact that it might be a fight. Wage the good warfare. Hold on to the faith. He says, hold on, don't let go. That's, that's holding on to your personal conversion, your individual experience of receiving Jesus. It's also holding on to the faith, the Christian doctrine, who we are and what we believe. Uh, listen, this is increasingly important. It's why we're adjusting the Wednesday schedule. All of you that are here tonight, I know you're here for worship service. In March, this is going to be a theological Bible study. Okay, we're going to sing some songs, so we're going to use our voices in worship. I want all of you to come back. I don't want anybody that's here tonight to say, okay, this isn't what I'm here for. No, we need to deepen our faith. Why do we need to deepen our faith? Not just so we can get together as a bunch of Christians and say, hey, this is what we believe. I know a little bit more. I'm a little smarter, a little more intelligent. No, the deeper our faith gets rooted in what we believe, the better it can be spread out in the way that we interact with unbelievers and those that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's telling Timothy is saying, hold on to that. Don't let go of it. Timothy, what will keep you stable as you oversee all of these challenges in the church is the faith that you had when you started. This is really encouraging. The faith that brought you to salvation, the faith that redeemed you at the first, is the same faith that will get you through when you've been a Christian for 50 or 60 or 70 years. We deepen it by knowing more about God and grasping more about who God is. But faith is the same. It's not like we get to a second level of Christianity. No, we just deepen our understanding and deepen our understanding of who God is and that helps us strengthen our faith 
Same faith. Hold on to the faith. That's another way that we remain in Jesus. Let me give you a third way we remain in Jesus with a good conscience, Paul says. In other words, part of the problem, the distinction Paul's making between Timothy and these false teachers is these false teachers had seared their conscience. They were doing some depraved things. They were doing some wicked things. They were sleeping around with some of the people in the church. That's what the text tells us in 1 Timothy. Their, their theology had gone awry. They had seared their conscience. What does that mean? It means pay attention to your own soul. Listen, if you're convicted about something, that means we confess it and acknowledge it and go back to the king who is immortal and glorious and ask him for forgiveness and salvation or forgiveness and cleansing, just like we did when we were saved at the first. Why? Because we need to have a good conscience. John Calvin put it this way. He said, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. I've watched folks fall away from the church. Not because their thought theology went away at first, but because their behavior, their, their sin, their own desire to do something wicked and evil led them to have bad theology. In other words, they, they, they were engaging in sinful behavior and then they twisted Scripture to fit their own lusts and their own desires. A good conscience, what does it mean? It means that we need people around us to hold us accountable. We need people asking us hard questions. We need to submit to the holiness of what Scripture tells us to be. Folks, that's what it means to be a body of believers. It means that sometimes you're going to challenge me and sometimes I'm going to challenge you with the pages of Scripture. And Scripture needs to bring us back to a right sense of behavior, good conscience before the Lord. Remain in Jesus. If you've received Jesus, remain in Him. There's another response we can give to Jesus, though. We could reject Jesus. That's possible, unfortunately. And there were some in, the, in this text that did that. Holding faith in a good conscience. And then Paul says, to qualify, by rejecting this, rejecting a good conscience, rejecting uh, waging a good warfare, rejecting holding on to the faith, by rejecting these types of things, uh, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. They've ruined their faith. They've, they've pushed away from it. Among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I think clearly what's taking place here is Paul's excommunicated a few of the church leaders, probably elders at the church at Ephesus. He had sent them out, cast them out. He had excommunicated them from the church because they were teaching other doctrine. They weren't teaching the gospel. They were flawed in their behavior and in their doctrine. Let me just give you a hard truth for just a second as a church. Sometimes that needs to happen. I think one of the things that's damaged the church of Jesus Christ in, in American culture is we've ignored Biblical, healthy church discipline. Where when someone wrecks their faith, we don't, we don't set them apart. And, and we don't set them apart because we hate them. Paul set them apart to Satan, setting them outside the church, turning them over to the place that Satan rules. That's what that means. So that they would learn not to blaspheme. It was redemptive in nature, just like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when church discipline was instituted there. But, but here's the warning. The warning is this. These folks had been in the church. They taught in the church. And still they rejected Jesus. There are several ways we can reject Jesus. There are some of those who have left the faith. And if there are those that you know that have left the faith, let me warn you. Offer a warning. See this in contemporary culture all the time. Those who are ex-evangelicals or who have deconstructed their faith. Megachurch pastors, Christian musicians... Uh, and, and it happens in churches like ours. 
I know folks who have drifted away from the faith because they just stopped believing what the Bible says. So, so they haven't been back to church, and they've just ignored that. Uh, let, let me warn you for a second. If you've walked away from Jesus, that's not a good place to be. You're outside of his protection. You might be outside of salvation. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But if you're not in, among the body of believers, there's a concern about your soul. And, and it's right for us to be concerned about that because your soul means you're going to heaven or you're not going to heaven, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's of, inter, of eternal importance. And so if you're outside the body of believers, if you push back from faith, if you've rejected God in, in a way that you've kind of lost faith, I'm concerned about you. Your church is concerned about you. And we don't want you to do that. Be warned. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you you're lost. What I'm telling you is Jesus is here ready for you to return to him. And I've watched people return to him over the years. He'll receive you back. To those who question the faith, let me encourage you for a second. I've talked to teenagers and adults over the years who've come across things in Scripture they don't understand. They've come at they, the faith that they had was a faith that was essentially granted to them by their parents. And they never made it personal. Maybe the experience was real as a child, but they didn't own their faith. They didn't learn their faith. Let me encourage you, if you question Christianity, I don't think that's a bad place for you to be. And here's why. Christianity has been questioned, persecuted, targeted, attacked, fought against for 2,000 years. And Christianity is still here. And Christianity will always be here because this is God's faith. This is God's story. This is God's gospel. This is God's good news. And, and if, uh, if people out there can attack it. People can question it. And there are some serious questions to our doctrines and to our belief systems. And I don't think questions ought to be responded to with just believe a little bit better and you'll be fine. I think questions ought to have answers. And if you're questioning the faith, that's not a bad place to be. But let me encourage you. Ask the right questions and seek the right places for answers. Okay? There are some good answers for biblical Christianity. Let us help you find some answers to the questions you have about faith. Let me give a, kind of a final warning. To those who reject Jesus, I just want to tell you, be frightened. Paul said he handed these folks over to Satan. And I think in the context he's talking about people being set outside the church. It, it's, a, it's a form of church discipline. But there is an inherent warning there. Jesus is the glorious example of salvation, the picture of the God who we worship. And he came to show us grace, mercy, peace, faith, and abundance. But if we don't follow him, then we're rejecting him. And if we reject him then we're saying we don't want the salvation he offers. We'll go our own way. And that means an eternal separation from God. That's burdensome. Every single one of us in this room, those of you watching at home, you know somebody who's rejected Jesus. You know somebody went to church one day, heard the gospel, has rejected Jesus. And we know people, because we're praying for them, who have never heard the gospel to have an opportunity to reject Jesus. And yet they're still apart from Christ. Two things that this does. If you're here and you haven't received Jesus yet, you just say you're rejecting him. By not receiving him, you've rejected him. Or you're in the practice of rejecting him. 
be frightened because that means that if you remain in that condition, you'll be separated from God forever. But Jesus is here today. He's here inviting you to receive him, to follow him, to be forgiven and to be redeemed and to be saved. And and you've got that opportunity in this worship service now. You've got it at home. Trust in Jesus alone and he will save you. What that means for us as believers, folks, it means that we've got people around us that need Jesus. And we need to tell them and we need to pray for them. Read that next section in chapter 2, that first paragraph in chapter 2. Paul talks about praying for those folks to receive Jesus. Do you know why some of the kids at our church have trusted in Jesus recently? Because their mamas and their daddies and their granddaddies and their pastor and their Sunday school teachers have been praying for them to receive Jesus. And God's been working in their little hearts and drawing them to faith. Do you know why your neighbors and your friends and your family will come to know Jesus? It's because God will be at work in their hearts. And he works through the prayers of his people. Folks, if there are folks that you know that are rejecting Jesus, we have an obligation to pray that they won't. To beg that God will save them and redeem them. Because a pardon is only good if it's received. See, Jesus Christ came to redeem us, to pardon us. He came to wash away our sin like he did with Paul, like he did with you, like he did with me. He came to offer us a pardon. But just because he died on the cross to give access to the pardon means that doesn't mean that everyone who he died to save in the sense of dying for the world will automatically be saved because for a pardon to be valid, the person has to receive the pardon. That's true historically. That's true theologically. In 1830... A man by the name of George Wilson was found guilty of armed robbery. And he was sentenced to death by the uh, Pennsylvania court system. Uh, President Andrew Jackson issued George Wilson a pardon. George Wilson refused the pardon. Refused to accept a presidential pardon to spare his life after that uh, act of guilt, act of armed robbery. His lawyer said this, you cannot execute a man who has been pardoned. That was their argument. Here's the Supreme Court verdict from 1830. They said a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. Folks, Jesus is the king of the ages. He is immortal. He is invisible. He is the only God. He came to be your savior and forgiver. But he's not going to make you receive him. He's not going to coerce you. He's going to invite you. He's going to woo you. He's going to call you. He's going to send preachers to tell you about him. He's going to send parents to pray for you. But he's not going to make you receive his pardon. He is inviting you to receive his pardon, though. So if you're here today and you haven't received him, I'm begging you, don't walk out of here without receiving the forgiveness Jesus offers. Christian, don't walk out of here without realizing that Jesus came to pardon not just you, but a whole bunch of other people. Stand with me, if you will. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world to save sinners like me and like us. I know there are folks on the other side of those screens that are watching us 
that are concerned about their soul and maybe in a place of rejecting you that may have fallen away from the faith, God, bring them back. Redeem them, save them if that's necessary. Draw them back to a place of recommitment if that's necessary. Lord, and I know, I know there are children attending our church in Awana right now, be here on Sunday mornings. I know there are teenagers attending our church. I know there are grandchildren and children that we've prayed for for years that have rejected you, that haven't received you yet. Father, we're burdened for them, and I pray, God, that even in this moment, you would open their hearts to the gospel of your Son. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open their eyes to see Jesus and his glory and his graciousness. I pray that you would draw them to salvation. Lord, if there are any in the room today that have not yet received your pardon, I pray that today would be their day of salvation, their day of response, their day of repentance, their day of life change. Lord, I pray that for your name and for your glory. And dear Father, we're your people who've been redeemed and forgiven. Help us to care about those who are lost deeply and passionately for their soul and for their eternity's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.